Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Servant Leadership Institute podcast. I'm Carol Malinsky, and our guest today is Don Jansen, who is a doctor of veterinary medicine. Don served with the San Diego Zoo Global in various leadership positions from 1985 to 2016, when he retired as corporate director of animal health. He led a team that looked after the health and welfare of over 7,000 animals at the San Diego Zoo and the Safari Park. Along the way, Don encountered servant leadership, and he is the author of Upside Down Leadership, which is the story of his journey to become a servant leader. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Carol. It's good to see you as always. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming back and recording with us. So today we are going to talk about leadership, of course, but a concept that you developed, which are the myths about leadership. Why was it that you got involved in writing about this, Don, and teaching about this? Well, I found that um, so much of what we hear about leadership is just not true. They're default sort of answers of how people ought to lead. Since they're really not true, you wonder why. And they're very widespread and and appealing. But uh, the truth is often radically different than these myths. Mm. So I thought it would be good to contrast the the myths with with, Mm -hmm. what what the big truths Mm -hmm. are. Yeah, excellent. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because we at the Servant Leadership Institute, we actually talk about servant leadership being the road less traveled. And I think that's, for our listeners, that's what they're going to see as you talk about these concepts coming up. Exactly. So just to get us started, what is the first myth that you want to tackle this morning? Well, I think it's the biggest one, really, the the one that causes the most trouble. And that is the myth that goes like this. Leaders are in control, and they tell people what to do. And it seems like that's Mm -hmm. kind of the way the world runs. Yeah. So can you elaborate a little bit on what makes this uh, so appealing for people? Well, I think it's, like I said, it's sort of the default. It's the command and control model that uh, people think is good, strong leadership. And I think it's appealing because uh, as leaders, making unilateral decisions makes you feel like you're being powerful and strong and, and decisive. That kind of power often colors the way we look at things. And and. It makes us feel uh, entitled to even more. It's kind of a dangerous road to follow and ends, ends badly. But that power and control is really a universal desire, I think, that all of us have. And we kind of have to control it. There's a really good story that isn't my story, but it's from a book called Turn the Ship Around. It was written by Captain David Marquette, and he was a captain of a, of a nuclear submarine. He was given the job to captain this this uh, ship about a year before he was going to do so. So he learned everything he could about that ship, all about the officers and every switch, what every switch did. And about a month before he was going to take command, they switched the ship on him. Oh. <laughs> so it was no longer the same ship. All that he had learned didn't really apply. Shortly after he took command, he was on some maneuvers just drilling, and they uh, had this, they were pretending that the nuclear engines were not working, so they were on battery power, mm. and everybody was doing what they would do when, when that happened. And he got a little impatient. It was kind of boring for him, so he told the helmsman to go all ahead three-quarters power instead of one-quarter power, which they had been on. 
and the the first mate uh, gave the order to the helmsman, and the helmsman froze. He didn't didn't move, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. And the captain asked, "What's the matter?" He said, "Captain, there is no three quarters power on this ship." <laughs> so he had the wrong information, and he he thought he would give the right order, but he didn't, and it was one that couldn't be done. So he realized that he couldn't control everything. Mm. And as a matter of fact, he learned as he went that he had to give up that control in order to do his job well. And as he realized further that he needed to push the authority to make decisions down to where the information was. And that changed everything for him. Instead of being the command and control captain that you think captains are or should be, he realized that he needed to spread that power and control through the operation and to make them train well enough to make those decisions and take the responsibility to do so. And that changed everything. That changed that ship from being the worst in the fleet to the best of the fleet in in just a year. Mm. So um, if it can work in a nuclear submarine where the stakes are really high, likely can work in most any situation because we don't normally think of the military as being a servant leader-led right. operation. Right. It's usually much more um, hierarchical than that. Yeah. But it, it works in, in all sorts of situations. Yeah, so what I'm hearing you say is that by giving up his power and giving that power to those people who actually do the job created a more efficient operation. That's right, that's right. And an empowered one, and one in which people took personal responsibility rather than, than, mm. than, than trying to avoid personal responsibility. And yeah, that's interesting. So he created more leaders. Yeah, and I had a, a similar breakthrough, I guess, in my, in my probably mid-career uh, when I th- w- was trying to assert myself as a, as a leader and thought that uh, by doing so, I would gain credibility instead of lose it. But it didn't work that way. And this, <laughs> the situation was... Uh, you know, the pandas just left San Diego, and, and we, we do not have pandas now. But we had pandas for a long time. And early on, when we were planning for the arrival of the pandas, it was a big deal with all of us at the San Diego Zoo. And everybody took their role very seriously. And we took, it took really years to get the permits and approvals and all that. And as it was getting close, we would meet weekly as a team, very interdisciplinary team, to work out the details. And the subject of quarantine came up. Because when animals arrive at the zoo, we put them in, through a quarantine, make sure they're healthy before they go out on exhibit. We had been waiting for these pandas for years, and the question of quarantine came up. And that's my area. You know, That's where I was in charge. I didn't have a lot of control over much, but I had a control over how quarantine was run. So somebody asked, do you think we could have a shortened quarantine and get them on display sooner? And I took the bait and said, well, normally we quarantine for 30 days, but the origin of the word quarantine comes from the number 40. So we're actually already doing a shortened quarantine of 30 days. I was very proud of myself for using the entomology of the word to <laughs> to make to make a point. And, I tell you, nobody said anything, including the person who asked the question, but the body language in the room told me I had lost a tremendous amount of influence in that group by my authoritative, arrogant uh, response. As it turned out, we did a shortened quarantine, and it was very safely done, and, but I learned a lot from that. And trying, to, trying to exert control does the opposite of what you want often. It's often yeah. counterproductive. 
What was it? You talked about their body language. Do you remember specifically what that was like? Yeah, it was avoiding the eye contact. It was uh, rolling eyes. Oh. It was swiveling in their chairs, glancing at one another, and trying not to to uh, show me any response. Yeah. So I I realized at that point very clearly that I'd made a mistake. Uh-huh. Wow, that's it's a fun story and also a very interesting story that you got that kind of reaction from people. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about that was, you know, you talked about it being a dangerous road, this command and control model. What do you think the results are of following that kind of model that are so dangerous? It comes to the uh, allure of power, I think, and the, the effect that power has on people. If they aren't very intentional about controlling that power, mm-hmm. keeping it under control. And it leads to the idea that if you have that position and power and control, you're entitled to a little bit more than everybody else. Mm. Maybe you think you've earned it. Maybe you think just because of your position, you have it. And it tends to be abused. I don't have to give any examples. People probably see that all over the place in their lives where power is uh, abused. And so I think that's the that's really the big danger of this. And it, it does damage to relationships. It does damage to organizations deeply mm-hmm. when this kind of leadership style is taken to its final destination, if you will. Yes. And I, I you know, I've really I've had the experience of seeing the destruction yes. that it can cause. And, you know, people are really changed by it, not for the better. Yes. They withdraw, they become very fearful as they do their day-to-day tasks. I think the more, I won't say older, the more mature I get, (laughs) the more I realize how very destructive that kind of situation is for people psychologically, physically, the whole gamut. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that when you talk about anxiety later in the, in the program. Well, and if you take Captain Marquette's response was transformed him, you know, mm-hmm. when that happened, if he had done what a lot of people might, you can, you can imagine somebody might have done when they got that response from the, the helmsman, that there was no three-quarter power, they, instead of, you know, backing off and go, whoops, I made a mistake, it would be attacking that person in a way they did not deserve. Mm-hmm. And if someone gets shot down that it, that doesn't deserve it like that, that doesn't have the power to do anything against it, they, you're right, they totally shut down and they will avoid any chance of being yelled at again mm-hmm. unfairly. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where those, those are the danger zones where the road can go. Yeah. So if it's a myth that leadership is about control, then what's the truth? What's an alternative that is true? There is an alternative, and it's radical, really. And the big truth is that great leaders learn to give up control because leadership isn't really about control. And that's where I think the mistake is. Leadership is about influence. And influence can be a very powerful tool to have, but it's something that you earn, and it's not something that you grab. I think the leader's goal should be to broaden their circle of influence and control what they can, which is really their only, only, only their own behavior. I like to look at it as a, as a chocolate-covered donut. <laughs> if you look at the, the, the whole donut, that's, that's all of your area of concern, your, your circle of concern, if you will. But what you really have 
and the, the circle in the middle, the hole in the donut is what you have control of. It's, it's kind of nothing, right? The only <laughs> thing you have control of over is what your, your behavior is. And the icing on the, the, the chocolate-covered icing, which is what I prefer, is the influence. If it's, if it's just a little bit, that's not so good. If it's filling the, covering the whole donut, that's really good. So you want to broaden that, that uh, influence, that chocolate covering, so that it covers the whole donut, the whole area of your concern. That's possible, is to broaden your influence without trying to increase your, those things that you can control, which is really only your own behavior. And, you know, that to me, I thought, reflected back on Robert Greenleaf, actually. And when Greenleaf asks, you know, the measure of a servant leader is, are people better off after coming in contact with you? That's really the frosting on the donut, right? Yeah, that's right. You want to be able to be influential in a way that is going to leave a lasting mark on people. Right, where they've grown as well. Yes, and I think we're, I think that's something that, I mean, I can't, certainly can't speak for everyone, but I think most people want to leave something behind that is important. Right. And, and that may be touching another life. Yeah. I know from my perspective, the looking back at my career, the most valuable thing I think is, is left behind are the uh, people we've trained. And we have trained residents, a dozen or so residents while I was there. And mm-hmm. And they've gone off and done great things. Yeah, you're right. Those are the, that's the influence that, that you have. If you try to control the behavior of those people, they're not going to be influenced by what you hope they will achieve. Yeah. But that desire for control is strong, and it's something that is, uh, that is something you really have to intentionally let go and work towards getting people's trust and gaining their and being able to influence them. Uh, a voluntary way. Mm-hmm. I like to define influence as that kind of difficult thing to obtain that is uh, changes the way people think in a voluntary way and, and something that they desire to do rather than are forced to do. Mm-hmm. And that takes skill, that takes patience, that takes real leadership. Right. And it takes, you know, Captain Marquette came to the realization that he had to drive down into the organization, right? And right. have them and and give them the power he was holding. That is a really, really tough thing to do when you prepare your team as a leader. And then you st- have to step back and let go. Right. And I think, I don't know, I know I used to struggle with that when I had folks reporting to me. It's having that, you know, that being able to say, okay, I have the, I have the faith that they're going to take what I've tried to impart to them and be okay. Yeah. What do you think helps us to be able to do that as leaders? Well, it's, it's difficult to do. I agree. It's, it's much nicer to have people come to you with problems and you fix them. Yeah. <laughs> much um, easier. <laughs> but it seems like is it, it, it seems like you have, with the experience, you've got the answers to fix things, but providing those answers doesn't always solve the problem because they have to be implemented by other people. And if they're your ideas and not their ideas, it may not work the way you mm. would have done it yourself. So, you know, I think it's, it's a matter of getting people to understand 
that you're there for them. You're there to help them through things and not to try to fix them all, all yourself. Yeah. And I think, you know, we have to be willing to to realize that they may accomp- go about accomplishing it in a little different way than we would. Right. And uh, again, having the trust and confidence in them, because hopefully you've built a relationship that allows them that freedom to then go ahead and, and do their thing. Right. And the, the, the situational leadership model, I think, is a good fit for this, where you, you as people mature in their position, they get more responsibility and you are required to do less mm-hmm. with them and developing them to the point where they are doing what you are doing, but doing it better. Mm. That's real success. Yeah. And, and real achievement, I think, as a leader. So just to recap some, some great points you had, Don, is that leadership is about influence and not control. And really the leader's goal should be to grow their circle of influence because they can only control their own behavior. And then leaders should push authority for decision-making down to the sources of that information. That was illustrated by Captain Marquette and his uh, ship. So really interesting. And I also loved your story about about being in the meeting and over the quarantine of, of the pandas. That was really interesting. Yeah, when I've told that story to other people, um, uh, often brings up an incident in their lives that they did the same thing. Where <laughs> you, you get full of yourself and you get arrogant and you want to show off and you realize nobody likes that. It doesn't work. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, let's move along to our next myth, which is myth number two. You want to share that one with us, Don? Yeah, I think this is what often is thought of, is that that the boss is the leader, only the boss is the leader, and great leaders are born with leadership charisma. So you can, you can spot them a mile off. What that says is that if only the boss can be the leader, I'm not. I can't be the leader. It's an appealing way to look at leadership, I think, because we would like to think that our leaders are in charge, that we can revere our leaders, we can look at them as special people that have special position and special capabilities, and we can put them on a pedestal and therefore put unrealistic expectations on them, and that they're gonna solve all our problems. And when they inevitably fail, which they will, you know, it's, it's just, they will not live up to our expectations. It's great because then we can blame them and avoid any re- taking any responsibility for ourselves. So it's a, it's a myth that is kind of self-fulfilling uh, and self-gratifying. You know, you can take that myth wherever you want it to go. Yeah, um, that concept of believing that our leaders are somehow superhuman. Mm-hmm. You know, dealing with when you realize they're not, it's very upsetting to people. And I think part of that, the part of this that really intrigues me was I had to learn about this, that, that I needed to look to myself and, and ask myself, what part did I play in whatever that situation was, yes, right? Right, exactly. You know, am I expecting something out of this leader that really isn't fair to be expecting? So I, I had to deal with that, I think, in my own servant leadership development. And this really goes... Uh, it's kind of the other side of the coin for the compared to the first myth. That was from the leader's perspective that they are in charge and they can make the decisions and, and everything is they tell people what to do. This is kind of from the follower's perspective that the boss is in charge 
and I don't have to take responsibility because the boss is in charge. Mm -hmm. So it, it, they play off of each other, really, just because the other side of the coin. Yeah, we see our organization structured in that way. Yes. You know, my boss is my buffer between you know, himself and the higher person on the org chart, mm -hmm. right? Everything we do, the structures we build really reinforce that. Yeah, they certainly do. And make it easier for us to abdicate our responsibility. Right. In my experience, it's very common uh, in work groups to blame it on the leader. And sometimes they, they deserve it. In fact, sometimes they are asking for it. <laughs> They're asking for trouble because they take that responsibility away from the staff. Mm -hmm. So it, they work, it, it works as a kind of a downward spiral. Yeah, definitely. And it's exciting to see a group where the individuals in the team truly take responsibility for what they do. And you end up really appreciating your job more because you have more, you're making more decisions. You're taking more responsibility. You're all in. Right. Hopefully. I think, and that's what causes it employee engagement right is when mm -hmm. people feel like they have a role in what they're going to do and what what is right to do this is part of that yeah art uh, barter likes to tell the story of doing this with his leadership team where he you know was going through servant leadership trying to instill servant leadership and after about the first year he turned around to see who was following him and, and out of his leadership team, there were maybe like three people that were really, you know, engaged and on board and the others weren't. And so he uh, took us all off site and said, you know, I want you guys to go off in, in groups and, you know, come up with a list of what are the characteristics of a servant leader. And then he narrowed it down to, you know, through this process, narrowed it down to like 10 characteristics. And he, he said, okay, these are yours now. This is what you've told me a servant leader will be. And this is what we want to strive for. And for the first time, he had people engaged because of the responsibility. It was their list that, that they came up with. Yeah. Bringing people into it and not being uh, the top-down authority mm -hmm. makes a difference. Yeah, really makes it possible. I probably talk about this more than once, but our CEO of San Diego Zoo Global just retired, and he he had been there for thirty four years. Wow! And he developed into a, I call a great leader, and mm -hmm. and that's one of the things that he was really good at was bringing others into decisions that needed to be made, and respecting their and honoring their those positions. He's really really good at that. He had a way of um, uniting people behind a, a vision and encouraging diversity of thought along the same way. You know, that, that diversity and unity is uh, very difficult to achieve, but very powerful when you do, and he was able to do that. Yeah. Did he do that through communication with people? In other words, did he have periodic times when he would talk to everybody or? Yes, he did. He, he, would, he would meet quarterly with, uh, with staff and, at uh, communication sessions. That was one of the ways he had direct contact with mm -hmm. people. And the, the people that reported to him had a lot of freedom in how they handled things. As long as they had the values of the organization in mind and the vision that directed the, where the organization was going, as part, mm -hmm. of, part of what they were trying to achieve. And that gave them a lot of freedom around kind of a tight vision. 
and, and values, and he stuck to that. One of the things that he was kind of famous in saying was, we're, gonna, we're doing this, whatever it might be, because it's the right thing to do. And, and everybody knew what the right thing to do was because it was clear in our organization what, what our vision was and what, what our mission was. But he kept bringing it back to the right thing rather than the expedient thing or what would bring money or bring, bring short-term gain. It was the right thing to do. Mm. And he had also a kind of uncanny ability to know what the right thing to do was. <laughs> That's interesting. And the other thing that I find fascinating is when people have this mission and vision as the leader, it sort of takes the leader out of the picture. In other words, people are performing for the mission and for the vision, not for a person. Right. Yes, I think that's really important uh, point. And, and, and really the leader, I always bring it down to the leader's number one job is to bring purpose to the, to the organization and, and to the people. So they have a clear purpose. Then they just need to get out of the way and make sure that purpose is, <laughs> the, the, everything is directed to that purpose, but get out of the way and let the people make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's part of, you know, making a, a vision or a mission or even your company values. That's taking them off the wall. That's right. And putting them into practice and allowing them to direct people's actions. Right. And actually, you can actually make decisions that way. You know, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. And that, that's why I think that was so effective for him when he would say that, because we knew what our values are mm-hmm. and we knew what our mission was. So that reminding people that that's what's important, not whatever else might be troubling this situation or, or complicating this decision, but keeping it really simple. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. It goes to this idea or uh, information, really, that we have that the servant leader, in good to great, he says that they are the humble humble ones. Yes. And that really goes to humility, I think. It does. Again, you have to be able, willing to give up that uh, I'm in front and I'm in in. In, in view and I'm everybody's looking at me for what what's going to happen you have to be willing to give that up and that does take humility mm-hmm. or power under control is a, what I like to call my definition of humility is power under control you you have if, if you're a you're in charge you've got power and that's great mm-hmm. don't let it go to your head <laughs> yeah. keep it under control it will be used for good purposes then what do we do with the out-of-control leaders, though? I mean, how do we, as people that uh, maybe are on their team or report to them, you know, when you see this, is there anything, you know, that you can do? It's very destructive. I don't know that there's an easy way of countering somebody who has is drunk with their own power, if you mm-hmm. will. If they have a position and they're in charge, all I can say is it usually doesn't last very long, but it, a lot of damage can happen during mm-hmm. that time. Yeah. I think it, this isn't a... A satisfying answer, but I think it, the truth is that you have to, if you, you can still be a servant leader under a power hungry boss. It's not easy, it's not fun, but you can still do it. Mm-hmm. And you just have to stick to that. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think that intrigues us probably the most about servant leadership is the fact that, because we tell people this as well all the time, you know, you're responsible for yourself. Right. And you have a choice every day to uh, either add value or not add value. Yeah. 
you know, it doesn't matter who your boss is. Right. And in doing so, you can gain influence. Mm -hmm. in, in time, you'll have your opportunity to use that influence. Right. You just have to be patient. And mm -hmm. Who wants to be patient? <laughs> you have to get prepared for that chocolate frosting to yeah. expand. Right. So so what's what's really the truth then about that about this myth that only the boss can be the leader and great leaders are born with leadership charisma. Well, it's it's the big truth really is the opposite that anybody can be a great leader regardless of their position or their personality and and there's a good examples of that all over the place of people who are extroverts that are great leaders and there are introverts that are great leaders. It's immaterial whether you are or not. And there are great leaders who are pushing a broom and there's great leaders who are running countries. That's the truth. And it doesn't have to be any, you don't have to have a position to be a leader and you don't have to have a personality type to be a leader. Anybody can be a leader. And servant leadership tells you how anybody can be a leader if they're willing to serve the needs of others over themselves and to develop trusting relationships. That's what it takes. Mm. And so I wanted to ask you about trusting relationships. How do you build those trusting relationships with people? Our lives are all about trust, right? We, we have uh, things that we trust and things that we don't trust. And the things that we trust or the people we trust are those who are consistently doing what they say they're going to do. You can bank on it. You know? mm. And you can believe in people who have a track record that is consistent and is something that is not just in their favor, but in your favor too. I think that the key is doing it consistently and doing it for other people over your own needs. Mm -hmm. When it becomes selfish, when it becomes erratic, then people don't trust. Mm -hmm. And you, you can't have a trusting relationship without those two things. Right. You know, it's almost like a discipline in your life as a leader that you have to orient yourself toward, you know, today I'm going into the office and I'm going to interface with people, serve people, try and help them to accomplish their end goals rather than an agenda that is totally focused on you or, or what you might want to do. Right. Yeah. Because we all are looking out for ourselves. You know, mm -hmm. you can't help but do that. But to take that and get outside of yourself, look to with compassion and kindness and respect and to develop the people that are working around you. That's how you develop trusting relationships. That's how you develop influence. That's how you get done things that you can't do on your own. Right. And it's how synergy develops among people. When you have groups of people that trust one another, mm. amazing things can happen. Definitely. So tell before we leave this subject, tell us about Malcolm and the Tiger. Early on in my training, I was um, I did my training at San Diego Zoo, and the uh, veterinarians themselves and the technicians were not a real well-led group. I'll say <laughs> they were full of difficulties. But the keeper force, the hospital keepers, were trained professionals, or maybe untrained professionals would be a better way to put it. They learned a lot on the job, mm -hmm. but they uh, they were trustworthy. They knew how to trust one another and how to develop trust around them. One of the keepers was named Murray Malcolm, and he in particular was uh, was a good leader. He did not have a position of leadership. He was just a keeper, but he, he had influence wherever he went around the hospital. People respected him and listened to him. We had one tiger that in those days, you, you moved a tiger by kind of forcing it to move from one place to another, not by training them to. 
But Murray Malcolm was different. He wanted to develop trust with this tiger. Every chance he got, he would work with it, trying to get it, gain its trust by feeding it and getting it to go to from place to place when he would ask it to. And, and the tire was very relaxed around him. When other people walked by, the tire, you know, tigers are big and they're scary. He would uh, growl and pounce towards people and scare them and, and they'd get a kick out of it and he'd get a kick out of it, but it wasn't good, you know. But with Murray, he was very calm, easygoing. And, uh, so on the day that he was scheduled to go back to his enclosure on the zoo and put in a crate for transport, it was logical that Malcolm would be the one who would operate the crate because they already had this relationship. But a terrible mistake happened and the wrong door was opened by somebody else and Malcolm suddenly found himself in the same space with a full-grown male tiger. And uh, he had not only that, but he had to go across the en entire enclosure, which was about 20 feet to get to the door that he could get out. Actually, he crawled along the roof of the, of the enclosure, which probably only made him a more interesting target for the mm -hmm. tiger. But the tiger watched him, made no aggression towards him, and he walked out the door. So that's an interesting story, and one that they didn't really want to talk about because it was embarrassing. But uh, for me, it was a really great example of how a person could develop a trusting relationship with an animal in this case, but he did the same thing with people. And in this case, it saved his life probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's uh, the way he treated that tire got him out of that situation. The tire trusted him. Mm -hmm. Tire was not uh, scared or was not worried that he would do something that would harm him. Mm -hmm. and I think it's the same way with people. You know, if you're if you develop a trusting relationship with people, they trust that you aren't out to harm them. And so when the chips are down, they'll be there for you. Well, that's an, that's an interesting story. That must have been really frightening. Holy moly. Let's move along to our next myth. Myth number three is credentials make a leader. Yeah, credentials. And what I mean by credentials are their qualifications, you know, the things that are on your resume. This one probably has a, a bit of truth to it because you have to have, in, in our business certainly, to be a veterinarian at the San Diego Zoo, you have to have credentials, you have to have experience, you have to have training, you have to have publications, you have to have a lot of things that appear in writing on a, on a resume. This is an appealing thing because they're objective. Probably most of all, it, it promises a path to leadership that doesn't require anything to do with people. <laughs> and people are messy. And so if you're if you think you want to be a leader, you want to get all the credentials you can. Uh, but relying on credentials alone leads to disappointment. It's just not enough. And I like to say that credentials are what get you in the door, but they're not enough to make you a good leader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's much deeper than that. I like your messy word because it definitely is messy. So if it's not credentials, what is it that makes a leader successful? Well, here the big truth is that it's character that makes a leader. And character is all those messy things, I guess. But it's professionalism in our business, you know, being professional, paying attention to people, being able to develop those trusting relationships we just talked about, having integrity, and being willing to serve others' needs over your own. Those are the character traits that really, some of them anyway, are what make up being a leader. Mm -hmm. And I think caring about people not just because of what they can do for you, what their job function might be, 
but caring about people because they're people and valuing them because they're people, that makes a difference too. In fact, our again, our CEO that just retired was, was famous for that. When you'd go into his office, he would put his full attention on you, 100% of his attention. And he made it really clear that regardless of the troubling situation that was going on that you may have been at fault of or part of or concerned with or wanting him to solve, he made it clear that he cared about you more than the troubling situation. And that always left me feeling like I was valued. Mm. Not just because I was uh, for my role, but he valued me as a person. And in fact, I would joke often when I'd be in with somebody else, we'd walk out, you know, kind of all happy and feeling good and not quite sure why, because we didn't get what we were after when we were going in there. But we still felt good. And I said, I think he's got some machine in there that, that aerosolizes a mist that makes you feel good. <laughs> but it wasn't that at all. It was really just Doug, our CEO, being good at listening and caring about people. Yeah. How would he, I just had the thought as I was listening to you, how would he handle it when it was a negative kind of situation? In other words, when he needed to make some kind of correction. Well, I think he would leave that to other people. <laughs> mm. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. He actually had a, a, a deputy that he, he said his job description was to do the things that he didn't like to do. <laughs> uh, but he would handle that the same way. You know, He would handle it showing you that he cared about you as a person. In, a, in any number of ways, he would do that, but mostly of paying, listening to you so you felt like you were heard. Mm-hmm. If there was a, a correction that he needed to make, he would make it, but he would make sure that he wasn't treating you as a malfunctioning machine, but as a person. Mm-hmm. And he had he was skilled at that. Mm-hmm. And it's an important skill to have as a leader. Yeah, and probably a lot of uh, follow through and perseverance with people. Yes, yes, yeah, and that's the way he he overcame uh, opposition as well is through persistence mm. and uh, and perseverance rather than fighting tooth and nail, you know, mm-hmm. he's just persistent about knowing what the right thing would be. And giving that consistent message like we, we talked about a little earlier about him. Right. Yeah, consistent message. And I had a mentor early on who really exemplifies this well, I think. His name was Murray Fowler. He was a veterinarian and probably the one that we would all consider to be the grandfather of zoological medicine. Hmm. He he taught it at, at, at the university, was probably the first one to teach it curriculum of zoo medicine. He was board certified in multiple boards. He, had, he wrote the book about zoo medicine, totally credentialed. I know. was just going to say, sounds like a lot of credentials. Yeah, he had them all, but he had more than that. He was, he treated the way he treated people. And, and that's the story I have. It was like an ordinary day, but we were going to the Sacramento Zoo, which when I was a student was where we, where he worked and where we trained. Mm. And on the way back, he told us we were going to go to a farm and see a horse. A lady had a horse that needed to be looked at. And I thought, why? We're zoo medicine people. We are not horse people. There's plenty of people who can take care of horse problems. Why are you doing that? You know, and I couldn't see what it would help his career. Why would he go see a horse? You know, I just couldn't see the point of it. It was kind of a waste of our time, waste of his time. But we went there anyway. And when we got there, the horse, it wasn't an emergency. It was just had a slowly healing wound on its foot. But he used it as a teaching opportunity mm-hmm. you know, for us. And if we would be willing to think it was you know, related to a zebra or something, we would be interested. And, uh, but what really caught my attention was, and I remember it 
all these years is the conversation he had with the owner after he examined the horse. They spoke easily. He had recommendations that she listened to. She was obviously very loyal to him from their previous interactions. And I thought, that's the kind of relationship I want with people, with clients, with my coworkers, that is an easy, trusting conversation to have. No conflict, just a good exchange of information, ideas, and recommendations. And they did the best thing for the horse. That's what I want to have. And I realized that the reason he had that was because he went to that place where there was a lady who had a horse that had a problem that could do nothing for him in his career. But he went anyway mm. because it was the right thing to do for him, mm-hmm. for him and for that person who he had a relationship with. And that's, that's where the power, I think, in, in this is. That's what develops character and that's what creates a leader. And Dr. Fowler was influential wherever he went. Whether it was at the university or at the Sacramento Zoo or in his church or the community, anywhere he went, he was extremely influential. Do you believe that he would have been in the same status if he didn't have all those credentials? No, I don't think he would. He he could have been a leader in other areas, but not in that area. Mm, right. The credentials, like I said, get you in the door. you got to have them for the role you have. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make you successful. That just gets you in the door. Mm-hmm. In our profession and, and other professions that require a lot of education and training, people get lost in that as the credentials are become the, so difficult to obtain. They put all their effort into that and forget about the thing that will make them successful once they have those credentials. And it's, it's difficult because it takes time to develop the leadership skills as it does the other skills. But you have to do them both. Right. And I, I also don't think there's enough, you know, we, we train focused on the competence issues, but not necessarily on the leadership side. That's right. But I'll tell you, the, the veterinarians that I see coming up through the ranks these days are much more aware of the importance of leadership than mm-hmm. my generation was. Mm-hmm. And I'm really heartened to yeah. see that. It's encouraging. It is very encouraging. That's great. Yeah, so Dr. Fowler showed that he could care about people because they're people and not just for the function that they serve. And that is not often the case for most leaders. They skip the people for people mm-hmm. <laughs> and just look at them for their function. Mm-hmm. And I think they lose a lot of followers in the process. Mm. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to part one of Myths We Tell Ourselves About Leadership, We will pick the conversation back up in part two. For now, we encourage you to visit our website. We have great resources for you to use as you grow in your servant leadership journey. Our website is www.servantleadershipinstitute.com. Thank you for allowing us to add value to your day. This is the Servant Leadership Institute podcast, signing off.